Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 156, and today is Friday, February 18th, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes is working in the field today. The intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia questions, the second part of our interview with guest Mike Kerner on the subject of cleaning chemistry, a What's News segment with Glenn Fellman, comments by technical director Dr. Dieter Weil, and our roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with environmental Annie and the wingman, have been working on the IAQ.com website, adding to the website and blog after every show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IAQ Radio and the IAQ Training Institute, and we hope you like the new look and improve functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show, and you can get the show through iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC continuing education credits, ACAC renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. My email address is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at ieqtraining.com. Congratulations to John Lapotere. With MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Park, Florida, for answering last week's trivia question, uh, he identified liquids as the type of matter which has a definite volume but no definite shape. His gift of 200 Legend Brands points is on his way to him. You can win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question or questions each week. Submitting your answers is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at proresoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia questions for Friday, February 12, 2010. 
Question one, what is the smallest unit of a substance that retains the properties of that substance? What is the smallest unit of the substance that retains the properties of that substance? Question two, matter that does not enter chemical reactions is described as what? Matter that does not enter chemical reactions is described as what? How about our intro music, Annie? There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercanium and and magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum, plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium and tantalum, technetium, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, krypton, neon, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. All right. Well, this afternoon we're having a repeat performance. Mike Kerner is senior scientist at Legend Brands. Mike moved to Legend Brands at the beginning of 2009, where he supports product development and introduction of Legend Brands chemical products, prepares technical documentation, and provides technical support to customers. Prior to joining Legend Brands, Mike served as senior scientist for ServiceMaster Clean and prior to that provided technical support for Aramark Management Services. Mike has an undergraduate degree in chemistry from Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois, and has a master's degree in chemistry from Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Legend Brands is the parent company of Dry's Products, Unsmoked Microband Products, and Sapphire Scientific. Good afternoon, Mike Kerner. And Hello, Cliff. Great. Well, uh, how are you? And you're sounding pretty good. Okay, Mike, um, I guess, uh, you know, as a chemist, are you or have you ever been afraid or intimidated by chemicals, you know, or any of the chemicals that you work with? Well, you know, it, it, it's something that uh, has changed over the years. It really comes down to a question of knowledge. But, you know, the better I understand the specific substance, uh, the less likely I'm going to be afraid of it. Um, typically, you just use a certain amount of care in handling any substance, whether it be water or oxygen. Um, you know, maybe one great example was one time when I was doing an experiment with uh, highly purified oxygen, and uh, we don't, you know, normally people are not afraid of oxygen, and uh, people have done this experiment where they take pure oxygen, take a piece of steel wool, uh, heat it till it's red hot, uh, and it just gets red, of course, and then you put it in pure oxygen, and it glows like a spark or it burns like crazy. All of a sudden, you start realizing that oxygen can be pretty dangerous if you don't handle it right. So, you know, really, the, the whole point behind fear uh, relates to your knowledge of it and proper handling, whether it be oxygen, water, or anything else. Okay. Well, last week, you know, we talked about some of the chemicals used in various cleaning processes. Um, do these materials have any environmental or personal safety impacts? And if so, is anything being done to reduce that impact? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's been very historical. In other words, it's, it's been an ongoing process for a long, long time. Give you a great example. <clears throat> Way back a long time ago, if a person wanted to do a removal of, of oily soil, tarry soil from the substance, they would probably use gasoline. You know, gasoline has got some fantastic characteristics as a cleaner. Don't anybody try this at home? <laughs> but it's, it, it does a great job degreasing. 
It's fully volatile, uh, doesn't leave any traces. Obviously, there's some downsides to this. You know, it blows up and things like that. And right. it's, it's relatively toxic. As time went on, uh, carbon tetrachloride was introduced as, as a alternate solvent. Had some great characteristics. Very low odor relative to gasoline. Uh, no flammability. Uh, at the time, was thought to be very non-toxic. Did a great job and so forth. And that, that pro- and, and, that was, and as time went on, we found out that 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 product had some certain drawbacks, and we've continued to evolve over time. Essentially, if you look at each one of the different components that go into cleaning uh, products, uh, they've all developed uh, better reliability, uh, lower uh, safety hazards, or environmental hazards. Uh, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind also is surfactants. You know, way back in the 70s, we were getting foaming in streams and rivers because the surfactants did not biodegrade in the sewage treatment plants. Now they, now the uh, materials that are used in almost all cleaning products are very readily biodegradable, and so there's not that hazard of them acting like surfactants when they get into the uh, streams and rivers. So you look at each one of these components, and yes, there's been significant improvement in each one of them. You know, you mentioned the term biodegradable. Could you just, you know, kind of explain to the listeners what that means? Yeah, yeah, that's that's one that's often misunderstood, in, uh, I think by the uh, by the layman, biodegradability really refers to the tendency for some material to return to its original state. Uh, so, for example, if we were to take something like um, uh, coconut oil, make it into some sort of a soap. Uh, now it's a different molecule. That molecule then gets used in a cleaning process. It goes down the drain, degrades usually into smaller organic molecules, which are very, very closely approximate what they were originally, which would be carbon dioxide and water, so that then the cycle then can continue. I think where people sometimes misunderstand that terminology is that they will assume that because something is biodegradable, it will always return to dirt and, um, or some other primary substance. Uh, an example of where that may be a little uh, deceiving would be something like a newspaper. A newspaper is made out of paper, and of course people think that paper is biodegradable, which it is. If you take a piece of paper, put it out on the dirt, um, why did it get exposed to sunlight? Eventually, it will biodegrade back into dirt. But when it goes into a landfill, uh, by contrast, it's sitting down the bottom of a mass of other trash, gets no exposure to light, oxygen, bacteria cannot work on it, and you can drill down to the bottom of a landfill and find newspapers that are 30 years old that are still easy to read. So people kind of misunderstand what biodegradability is, and its impact on how we handle solid waste. Mike, could you clarify for our listeners the difference between materials which would be naturally derived as opposed to those materials which would be man-made or known as synthetics? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah another really interesting question because um, I think in our current climate, people tend to look at a material that is naturally derived as some way preferential or safer. And there's a lot of interesting argument back and forth. But basically, if, um, if a material, if a substance is derived from some, uh, in, in particular, you think of a plant or a rock, where you take, uh, we used the, uh, last week the example of orange juice. You take orange juice and you squeeze, you squeeze, take an orange, squeeze it, and you get orange juice out. That's, that's a naturally derived material. Now, you could even take that a little step further, and if you were to take that same orange juice and you remove the water by concentrating it, uh, strictly speaking, it's not natural anymore. You put water back in, but now you've, you've done something to it. Then you can also look at other materials, such as, say, a plastic, such as nylon or polyethylene or even glass. You take uh, sand and you mix it with certain substances, heat it up, and now it's glass. It's not not sand anymore. So that would be a synthetic material. 
And I think that there's a tendency for people to believe that a synthetic material is in some way, shape, or form uh, less environmentally uh, safe or less personally safe than a natural material. And you can make arguments for that, but in general, that's, that's not always true. If you take a look at the materials like tobacco, strychnine, um, those are natural botanical materials, and they're extremely dangerous. Uh, even things that are derived from uh, some types of fermentation. Uh, Botox, for example, people think about Botox injections. A naturally derived material, and yet uh, botulism toxin, which is what Botox is, is one of the most hazardous materials known to mankind. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mike, um, I guess what can be, well, what, just how toxic are the cleaning products that are you know used in, in building maintenance and you know, disaster restoration and repair, mold remediation, you know, the kind of common stuff our guys use? Uh Toxicity is an interesting question, um, and you know, not, not to beg the question, but there's almost no answer to that. And here's what I mean: the the toxicity of any given material depends on several characteristics. One of which is the inherent uh, toxicity of the molecule itself. <clears throat> I mentioned for a moment ago botulism toxin, which is a very very potent material. Very small quantities of that toxin. Uh, will cause irreparable damage to the human body, to the human nervous system. And that's based on certain measurements called an LD50. And that's it's one of a number of measurements that describe the toxicity of the material. The less exposure a person or an organism has to that substance and it causes bad effects, the more toxic it is. In general, cleaning products um, end up being end up having LD50s that are really pretty comparable to a lot of other materials that are used. So it's not so much materials are toxic, but the question is, what's the level of exposure? How are they handled? Um, You get things like uh, rubbing alcohol, which is used in a lot of glass cleaners, for example. Uh, Rubbing alcohol can be used very safely, but there comes a level where if you don't have adequate ventilation, you will start to see things like central nervous system effects. So in general, uh, the question is not so much how toxic are these materials, but what's, what's the, the exposure level? Uh, how are people using them? Uh, but really, the materials that are used, for example, in, in cleaning products like surfactants, chemically are very similar to things like emulsifiers that are used in food products. Um, and a lot of cosmetics use very many of the same raw materials. Mike, you used the term LD50. I'm not sure that our audience uh, knows what that means. So if we could get you to clarify it, uh, we would like you to do that. And and then uh, if you could comment on two random LD50s, uh, one would be DDT, which I think a lot of our people are familiar with, and another one might be uh, aspirin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get something like, um, well, LD50... Uh, it refers to lethal dose 50%. Uh, basically what's done is you have a particular um, set of organisms, uh, might be rabbits, mice, some, some type of organism that could be susceptible to a given material. You expose these organisms to the material and determine the, the fatality rate, the lethal dose. And the dose at which half of these organisms die is the LD50. So, of course, the lower the LD50, the, um, you know, the greater the toxicity. And it's, it's not the only measurement of toxicity, but it's one that's very commonly found in, uh, in the literature, especially the material safety data sheets that we distribute with a lot of maintenance products. If and you're referring to the example of something like uh, DDT and aspirin, right. And, uh, in fact, you know, before the show, uh, I looked that up, and it turns out that uh, aspirin has a uh, LD50 of 1,000 milligrams per kilogram. Okay, so what, basically what that means is if you expose, say, lab rats to 1,000 milligrams or one gram, which is about as much as, you know, say, a teaspoon 
of, of water um, that the you'll get half of the uh, rats dying off uh, per per kilogram of body weight. Uh, DDT has uh, LD50, uh, at least in the literature I saw, about 113. So um, the it takes less DDT uh, to do away with some rats than something like aspirin. So that that's it kind of gives you a relative uh, issue there. But what it shows you is that you you still can, with a relatively small amount of aspirin, uh, cause death with an organism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people tend to look at, say, you know, a product like DDT, which had so much notoriety in the 60s, as being very horribly toxic, um, versus something like aspirin, which people take every day. Um, and yet, it's uh, I've read uh, commentaries by people that say that if aspirin was to go up uh, for FDA approval today, uh, probably would not receive approval because of things like this LD50. It's tendency to cause side effects and so forth. So um, it, it's another example of where the, the LD50s and the perception of particular material don't always reflect the true hazard. Um, does exposure mean toxicity, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, another good question. They they really describe different things, of course. We tend to think of them uh, somewhat similar. But toxicity refers, as we mentioned before, the inherent tendency of a particular material to be dangerous. Um, the exposure refers to the tendency for a person actually to have some uh, contact with the material. Um, so, for example, if I'm, maybe the simplest example of all, if I'm using uh, a detergent to clean something and I have a, a detergent that's fairly strong degreaser, um, it can be very, very strong degreaser, and if it contacts my skin, then my skin's going to get dry and it's going to crack and it'll get irritated. If I simply put gloves on, I don't have exposure anymore, so I don't worry about that. Uh, if you use, the, say, the, the most extreme examples of, of exposure versus potential hazard, consider some of the very sophisticated uh, research laboratories that the CDC uses to study very, very uh, potent organisms, potent pathogens. In that case, they take extreme measures to avoid uh, any kind of exposure. They have the gloves. They have the self-contained breathing apparatus. They have fully enclosed face masks, fully enclosed body suits, so that the chance of exposure is is absolutely zero. And so you take the 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 risk of particular material, and you rate your personal protection or potential exposure uh, relative to that. You know, you mentioned skin exposure. You know, getting a product on one's hands. What other common routes of exposure are there? Yeah, certainly the, uh, the the skin exposure is the one that's uh, that's very very likely. But the other thing that uh, people most likely run into would be uh, air exposure. Um, you have volatile materials that get up in the air, and so respiration uh, is also uh, probably the one of the most significant. And in fact, ends up being one of the probably one of the more troublesome in our industry because when people uh, whenever anything gets up in the air, if it has a strong odor, thus you, you have a, uh, an exposure, a respiratory exposure, then people will make the assumption that the material is dangerous, unless that strong odor is a familiar one. And maybe a great example would be um, uh, the other day my wife and I were walking around a shopping mall, and we, for, for whatever reason, noticed that there's a smell of butterscotch in the air. We didn't know if there was a restaurant or something like that. We weren't alarmed by that respiratory exposure because the butterscotch was a very familiar odor, and it was actually rather nice. But as we continued to walk toward the source of this odor, whatever it was, the odor became stronger and stronger to the point where it was really very irritating, and we had to get away. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, presumably if it was butterscotch, a simple, common odor, Uh, It's something that really started getting irritating to us, and we had to get away from it. But the initial exposure of familiar odor was was very, very pleasant. Mm -hmm. 
So it's uh, that, that is a common route of exposure, and the, the nature of that odor and the person's familiarity with it has a tremendous amount to do with whether they would consider it at least initially dangerous. Well, you know, what about ingestion? Uh, ingestion is certainly a possibility. It, it's less likely in, in normal working environments. Now, you, in, in say, uh, the trained worker who is uh, using a cleaning product, a disinfecting product, you know, the chances of ingestion are obviously pretty small. When you're dealing with uh, situations where there might be small children, might be animals. Um, back in my days with uh, Airmark, we were doing a lot of work in cleaning um, nursing homes, for example, and you have people that have various levels of dementia. Um, there's always the possibility that you could have somebody grabbing a product, ingesting it, thinking that it's something else. So in a case like that, we had carts, uh, service carts that locked to make sure that, that potential for exposure as minimal as possible. But certainly uh, ingestion is a possibility, less likely than some of the others that, uh, that we run to on a daily basis. The reason I mentioned the ingestion, Mike, is you know a lot of people that listen do remediation and uh, they might clean textiles as, as part of their work. And a common question that remediators get asked, uh, textile cleaners get asked, or, you know, you clean my carpet, what happens, you know, can my child play on that carpet? What would happen if they licked the carpet? You know, what would happen if my cat, you know, walked on the carpet and then groomed itself and, you know, licked his paws? You know, are they going to get seriously ill, uh, you know, with that sure. ingestion but, exposure? Yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's a tough one, too, because in one sense, it's a very easy question to answer because the answer is it would be virtually impossible for there to be a significant problem based on that. But it, it gets into some of the mathematics of the issue, and I think sometimes the, the building owner doesn't want to follow that logic. And what I mean is if you were simply to look uh, statistically at, say, we, we clean a carpet, we pre-spray a carpet with some sort of a detergent, we extract it with water, we extract it with a neutralizing agent. And you calculate how many, say, ounces are in a gallon of the material, how many of those are few gallons are spread over the surface of, of the carpet, and then you take a look at how many micrograms of material are actually on that, say, square inch of carpet fiber. You'd have to lick the entire living room to have any significant exposure. But I think the problem comes in is that when you try to go through a number sequence like that, you know, grams per ounce, ounces per square foot, potential exposure per square inch, you start losing people. Their eyes glaze over very quickly, and they don't really understand what you're talking about. But it really goes back to what you asked before, which is the distinction between exposure and toxicity. You can have uh, a significant amount of material on the surface, but if you have very minimal exposure, which you will have in the example you're talking about, uh, the risk to health is, is practically infinitesimal. Okay. Well, Mike, we're about halfway through, so what I'd like you to do is please hang on. Uh, we're going to go to our sponsors and then our newsman and get some comments uh, from Dieter, and, and then we're going to resume with our interview. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association a nonprofit, multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Now, thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at 
ieconnections.com. Dry's Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry's is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Glenn, back with us. Thank you for joining us. Hello. How are you today? Good. Cold. Cold. Icy, well, but we're here. That's how we are in the mid-Atlantic now. We are cold, we are icy, and we are getting ready for uh, all the telltale signs of water damage that come with ice-dammed gutters and feet of snow surrounding the foundation of your home. Amen. Going to be a banner season for water restorers in a couple weeks, and indoor environmental consultants, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah they'll be right behind them. Right. Well, listen, today I've got uh, uh, two top stories, and I got a couple more if we've got time. And my top stories both tie into some timely things that we've been discussing a lot uh, over the last several months. First one I want to talk about is uh, our old friend Chinese drywall, or more uh, politically correct. Uh, referred to as corrosive drywall. Uh, just this past week, HUD and the Consumer Product Safety Commission issued guidance on identifying problem drywalls in homes. Uh, the guidance um, helps people to identify the presence of metal corrosion as well as other indicators of problem drywall. The guidance takes into account visual signs of metal corrosion, evidence of drywall installation in the relevant time period, and the identification of other corroborating evidence or characteristics. Uh, this uh, document from HUD and CPSC has a two-step guidance, and again, it requires a visual inspection that must show blackening of copper electrical wiring and or uh, air conditioning evaporator coils and the installation of new drywall for new construction or renovation between 2001 and 2008. If you want to see that guideline, you can visit the HUD website, which is hud.gov, or the Consumer Product Safety Commission website, which is cpsc.gov. And in a quote from the CPSC chairman, Inez Tenenbaum, she said, we are looking forward to help families who are suffering from problem drywall in their homes. We are committed to helping them, and we continue to rely on solid science to identify the specific causes and remedies of problem drywall. So there you go. We've got additional guidance on that, and uh, hopefully... This will help IAQ professionals to uh, let consumers know whether their problems are drywall-related or not. My second story for today is kind of a, an, an economic story, if you will, or, or maybe an economic indicator. Uh, we are all hearing on the news these days that the recession is, uh, is, is slowly lifting, that there are signs of growth in the economy, albeit somewhat small. And I think there's a sign uh, within our industry that there's uh, a rebound as well. And, and, and I use as evidence uh, that next month's Indoor Air Expo has now sold out of exhibit space as of, as of just uh, yesterday, in fact. Uh, all the booths are gone. This trade show is going to feature 180 exhibiting companies filling 26,500 square feet of booth space. I can tell you, having surveyed a lot of organizations over the last 18 months, you know they suffered horribly with their meeting attendance and with their exhibitors. So the fact that so many vendors have signed up for this Indoor Air Quality Association Indoor Air Expo, to me, is an indicator that times are getting better, vendors are getting out there again and advertising and promoting their products, and hopefully contractors and consultants will purchase those products. Anyone who's interested in the Indoor Air Expo can go to iaqa.org, 
and look at the list of exhibitors. They can also see the IAQA annual meeting program and, and fill out a registration form. Cool. Next on my list, if I have time for one or two more. We'll do one more. One more, good. Okay, well, this is kind of exciting, uh, and it's something different. ASHRAE was just awarded a, an ASHRAE is the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Man, your acronym police are not on the ball today, Cliff. Uh, I she, she's here. She's here. I could, <laughs> you know, I, between HUD and CPSC, I've got at least two violations already. All right. ASHRAE has been awarded $1.5 million in grant money from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, to conduct a three-year research project on ventilation and indoor air quality, get this, in retail stores. Never been done before. ASHRAE's project, called Ventilation and Indoor Air Quality in Retail Stores, is one of 27 projects funded by NIST for measurement science and engineering research. Uh, the NIST Measurement Science and Engineering Research Grants Program, uh, which is made possible through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, provides $34 million in grants at higher education, commercial, and nonprofit organizations in 18 states. The project is being conducted through ASHRAE's research program. And currently, uh, you know, there's very little published information about air quality and ventilation rates in retail spaces in the U.S. And ventilation requirements for retail and other spaces have been largely set up uh, using data for commercial office buildings. And we know the uses and occupancies are very different. Uh, given that there are some 14.6, get this, billion square feet of retail space in the U.S. where people shop sometimes 24-7, it's pretty vital that ventilation systems operate as efficiently as possible while maintaining good indoor air quality. If you want to read more about that study and what its goals are, you can go to ashray.org and click on their press room. That's news for today, Cliff. We've got a great show going, so I'll let you get back to our guest, and uh, I'd be happy to join in the roundup if you've got time for that at the end. Oh, we certainly will, and look forward to having you back. Let's go over to Dieter. Dr. Dieter Weil. Well, I hope, I hope Mr. Beethoven can listen to that every time. Uh, uh, I have about two hours' worth of comments. And what Glenn just uh, 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 mentioned is uh, I'm involved in looking at air quality in the casino. And that is all of a sudden. Those were things that nobody ever gave a damn about. <laughs> and all of a sudden it becomes uh, interesting to people who are working on that. So, yes, I'm working on that and I'm working on a couple of other projects which have also something to do with exposure of uh, and yeah, non-workers, you know, like something in a mall. Anyway, that is that is uh, uh, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> you also mentioned I'm looking at my gutter, which is hanging half down. I don't think I need a water expert, but I need somebody to put my gutters on again. <laughs> it's awful. For those people who uh, are listening, I'm living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I haven't seen something like this um, in a long time. Uh, I think we made a couple of very excellent comments, and I just amplify a little bit. We know there are LD50s and there are LC50s, and in other words, you can test a chemical uh, in several ways. You can put it on somebody's skin, and you can ingest it, you can inhale it, and we mentioned that, that inhalation is by and large the major route of entry of anything into the body. Yeah, if we find an old uh, drum somewhere that ever knows what's in it, um, and we, we investigate that, we, we may put on a pair of gloves, but we always have to breathe yeah, 24 hours a day. We don't have to wear those gloves. And I, uh, I worked for years and years for a huge chemical company, and we had a couple of uh, chemi uh, chemi uh, chemicals which, yeah, on one hand, if you ingested the material, there wasn't really a heck of a lot to write home about. And relatively small amounts of inhalation really did the trick. 
in other words, that may be confusing to somebody. And that is my introduction to these material safety data sheets. I probably wrote some of the first material safety data sheets in early 1970 or thereabouts uh, when OSHA wanted uh, uh, information. And at that time, I was a man on the floor. I commuted information to the worker. I didn't tell them what the LB50 and the LC50 and the ba-ba-ba and ba-ba-ba and ba-ba-ba was. I told them how to use this material safely. Then, unfortunately, and I have nothing against lawyers, really, they looked at me and said, oh, my God, we can get nailed if you say that and that and that. Now, it is, yeah, today, safety, material safety data sheets are almost written by lawyers for lawyers. It's almost like our tax code in this country, uh, which uh, I don't know how many thousands of pages we have in the tax code. It was written by one lawyer for the other lawyers, and they have job security, uh, which is, uh, we have to look at, at, at those things. But... Um, uh, what, what, what am I trying to say? If you read a material safety data sheet, um, if you have questions, ask somebody who knows what that all means. And uh, I think, and from what I have seen, and I was just involved in a case, uh, the material safety data sheet uh, wasn't what I uh, uh, thought was good information for the consumer who is, quote, stupid. He doesn't know what an LD50 and LC50, and he shouldn't. There is nothing wrong with that. So those are a couple of problems that uh, uh, we have over there, and we touched on another one, and this is, you know, the individual susceptibility to certain things. A couple of chemicals which don't bother me at all may set somebody else off that may be due to sensitization or whatever the bio... Uh, a chemical makeup uh, is of, of, of that body. And I would also, and uh, this is, uh, I don't know how often I have uh, preached that, if you have 100% of oxygen, this is a nasty chemical, and you better know what that, this is not just a nice little thing that we are breathing, particularly when it's in a 3,000 PSI uh, bottle. And you inhale that stuff uh, 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 by itself and ask the unfortunate three uh, uh, astronauts who uh, perished in a space capsule where some idiot put in explosion-proof switches and almost 100% oxygen. Uh, they found out in a hurry that this is not a good idea to do that. Anyway, I said, uh, <laughs> my introduction was, I have about two more hours to go, but uh, let's go back and um, and uh, uh, to what we were talking uh, about before. Okay, thank you, Dieter, and please join us at the roundup uh, in the end. Okay, now, Actually, we're, now we're back to, to Mike. Mike, I think the term green is is used pretty commonly, you know, now, and and it's probably a term that um, our public, at least in the United States, North America, I think in Europe, is probably uh, inescapable. You know, what is meant by the word green, and how do we determine whether or not a substance uh, is green? Oh, wow. Uh, a, you could, as, as Dieter suggested, you could talk two hours on that. Um, it, it's an interesting topic because a simple word like green evokes all kinds of different emotions, and I think that's where part of the problem comes in. Um, we all instinctively know that we want to have clean things around us. We want to have clean water, clean air, clean environment. We want to have clean carpets. We also know instinctively that we've not done a real good job as a society in handling waste products. So we have landfills that are filling up. We're aware of the possibility of resource depletion. We know that we can cut down forests, for example, and that we can deplete oil wells or water reservoirs. So I think over 
you know, the last 40, 50 years, there's been a, a greater concern about all these factors, but they tend to create sort of an emotional uh, impact, and, and this emotional impact is expressed in the word green. And so what's happening now, and you, you hear the word uh, greenwashing every so often, is that virtually every company on the planet is promoting their product or service as green and picking out some aspect of that product or service that seems to feed into this emotional uh, stance or this emotional feeling about what green represents. But there's not really a great deal of uh, tremendous, rigorous definition of what green is. So it kind of goes back to your original question, Cliff, what is green? Uh, I've asked different people um, what their definition of green is, and uh, probably one of the best definitions I've heard uh, comes uh, about is a green is a product or service done in a way that is less toxic or more environmentally beneficial than what we had before. And to me, that really kind of wraps it up. And, and, and part of what makes it even more difficult is if you look at um, some organizations uh, around the world that essentially define green standards. And there are some very good organizations that do this. Uh, they'll say that a particular product or service, if meeting certain standards, certain design characteristics, can be classified as green. But what you also find out is that when these organizations put out a standard, that standard ends up changing within a year or two, and now all of a sudden it was green, defined as green last year, is not green today. So it's it's not really an answer to the question because the question is actually very complex. Uh, there's just so many facets to what it is. Basically, if something has less toxicity, greater sustainability, greater ability to deal with waste product, uh, people will tend to think of that as green. But it's such a squishy concept right now that I don't think there's any rigorous definition. Okay. You know, in terms, you know, you mentioned this term greenwashing, but I, I don't know that you really defined it. You know, what is greenwashing? Yeah, greenwashing is a, is a marketing practice in which a product or service is purported to be in some way, shape, or form environmentally beneficial or in some way green, but on further examination, there's really no substance to making that claim. Um, you know, uh, one example might be, oh, here, here's one that may seem like a weird example, but uh, we'll, we'll try it. If you have a product that is uh, got sugar, um, people might say, oh, sugar's not very good for you. It's, 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 you know, it's a toxic material, and so... Uh, we don't we don't want that to be uh, we don't want to use that. You can also find products that have a label that says uh, natural cane water extract, which is sugar. And so it's the same thing, but by making it look natural, uh, more natural in one way, shape, or form, it, it's viewed as somehow greener than otherwise. I saw another example of a of a brochure that said that the brochure was green because it's made from earth-friendly materials. You know, what on earth does that mean? So, again, using some sort of a marketing appeal to make the product look that look as though it has some sort of better resource utilization or lower toxicity when, in fact, really none exists. Mike, do you think that chemical injury to remediation workers or occupants of buildings that are being remediated is really a widespread problem in the cleaning and remediation field? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that question. Um, I, when, as, as this green uh, trend toward uh, cleaning and restoration chemicals came up, I was asking myself that same question. And I remember... Uh, I was up in Minnesota talking to a gentleman who was uh, an insurance underwriter, and he specialized in workman's compensation. So I had a little conversation with him, and I said, well, you know, this, this could be a very good thing, because if we have products that, say, are classified as green, and we know that some investment is made in getting a product classified as green, 
what return, what, what measurement of benefit can we see? And, and I thought, gee, if we can show lower um, workman compensation claims due to chemical exposure, they would be terrific. So that if we, say, invest $100 in a green chemical and we get $1,000 uh, less exposure or less injury because of exposure to these chemicals, we've paid for itself and it's a wonderful thing. And I said, does this theory of mine make sense? And he says, well, Mike, it really does not. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, basically, the, the exposures that we see, at least in our part of the world in Minnesota, due to chemical exposures are virtually nil. The kinds of exposures that we see typically are things like you know, slip and fall, back injuries, burns. So really, there, there isn't that much exposure. And, and I think that kind of answers the question. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of it. Actually, we have a question that was just texted in, Mike, by, by one of our listeners, and you know, I, I think it's appropriate. Uh, could you comment on products that companies claim that they can drink and may demonstrate by drinking the product? Uh, well, to me, that's just, it, it's not good practice. By drinking a product, what you're trying to say is the product in some way is not going to damage your particular immune system or your particular um, stomach uh, chemistry. Um, to me, that's just an irresponsible way of, of marketing something. Um, it, 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 it can be effective, but what it's essentially saying is that uh, this material is a food substance, and, and it's really not. Um, I just don't think it's a good way of doing it. Um, and that, that's just my opinion. When you get to the point of looking at materials uh, ingestion as a sign of whether it's safe or not, it's not a good idea. Uh, really one of the biggest problems that you run into with, with a lot of exposures in our industry is allergy. You know, Dieter was talking about that before, that, uh, you know, if you were to, uh, say, one person drink um, orange juice, another person drinks orange juice, one person drops dead because they're allergic to it. Is that indication of safety? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, it just, to me, it just doesn't seem like a good practice. Mm -hmm. Mike, what can we do to make cleaning products and cleaning processes safer? I think there's, there's a couple things. Uh, realistically, the, the, the number one thing that that I think is is training on the proper use of the product, and, and that may seem very very superficial, but uh, in my own <clears throat> activities these days, <clears throat> excuse me, in my own activities in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to a lot of people that do cleaning, and I'm really surprised at the lack of knowledge that people have about how products are properly to be used, the chemistry that supports them, and so forth. If, if we could get people just to read the labels that are on the, the, the containers, uh, get them to call manufacturers to make sure they understand how to use them properly, um, that seems very simplistic, but that really would be the best way of, of taking care of these kind of problems. Another thing that uh, I think the industry is moving toward uh, which is different types of dispensing systems that help people to automatically uh, get the right concentration of product uh, when, when a concentrate's involved. I think we've done a lot of good with the systems that apply products. Uh, we've been doing things like using foaming systems to apply liquids so that more of it gets on the surface, less of it, less of it gets aerosolized into the air. I think we've also done a very good job in trying to take solvent systems that are intended to go onto a surface, for example, carpet cleaning products, are using more and more non-volatile solvents so that that solvent stays on the carpet where it's supposed to loosen the soil and then get flushed off rather than get up and get, getting up into the air. Uh, in terms of fragrances, uh, for many years there's been a tendency more toward using non-allergenic uh, non uh, 
hyper or hypoallergenic fragrances, so the chances of allergic exposure are less. So there are some things in the formulating that we can do, but in terms of applying the product, and but the, again, the main thing is training, training people to properly use the product according to label instructions. Um, can you comment on the advisability of referring to antimicrobial products used in routine disaster restoration as pesticides and biocides and on the practice of calling customers' attention to these products by asking them to sign waivers and so on and so forth? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I know you and I have talked about that, Cliff, and, and I think it's, it's, it's really a double-edged sword. You know, on one hand, the, the product, if, if, if you have a customer who has a real uh, just horrible fear of, of microbial contamination, they want to hear that you're using some sort of an antimicrobial or some sort of germ killer on there. Um, and I think especially if there's a concern about, like as, as we've seen over the last, I'll say, several months about H1N1, uh, not a disaster restoration situation, but I think it still applies. In a case like that, a person really is desperate to hear the words, it will kill H1N1, it will kill SARS, or whatever the germ of the month club happens to be. So there's an advantage in calling attention to the germ-killing cap capability of a product in a particular circumstance like that. On the other hand, when you're, when you're calling people to, uh, people's attention to the idea of kill, then they start getting very, very nervous, and they worry that the germ-killing material will be somehow deleterious to their health. And what people don't realize, and what, what they don't think about, is that there's all kinds of materials that you run into, even inside your own body, that are designed to kill germs. You know, we, we don't call your immune system an antimicrobial, and yet that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. You don't talk about your tears as being antimicrobial, but that is one of the functions of tears, is to be an antimicrobial. So there's, you know, there's a plus and a minus to that, and I think to a great, great extent it depends on the, the, the concern that the customer has about the, the environment that they're facing right now. As far as signing a waiver is concerned, now that is, again, a double-edged sword. If there's a problem and you want to refer to the waiver later on that the person agreed to this, uh, you know, maybe it'll keep you out of court, but a lot of waivers really are not much worth much more than the paper they're written on, and they sensitize to the person the possibility that something may be wrong. So I think in general... Um, the, the, the challenge that the average person that's providing disaster restoration services faces is to, to, to read people, to understand, you know, what are their concerns, what are their worries, what do they want to hear, so that you design that particular service for that customer uh, with their needs in mind. Well, I think one last question, Mike, and then we're going to go into... Uh our roundup. Um, what does the term junk science mean to you? Oh, it's one of those things that really gets me mad. Uh, um, junk science basically is taking scientific knowledge, scientific information, and either half-reporting it or distorting it in such a way that it gives a completely different impression from what the truth actually is. And you know, I'm trying to think of a good example of junk science right now, but um, well, uh, the the issue with uh, silicone breast implants, I, I think, was probably a, a great one because there was a, a devastating uh, issue. Uh, women throughout the country, throughout the world, were just frightened to death uh, that they might have had some injury from from these reconstructive surgeries. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that really. Um, the, at least the studies that I've seen so far show that there hasn't been any defined um, diagnosis of anyone who's actually been made ill by one of these things. Um, it came about because the FDA, as precaution, pulled them off the market while they were checking something, and before you knew it, there was uh, just tremendous fear on the part of a lot of women that, that they had been damaged. And I, that could be an example of junk science. In other words, somebody 
said something was dangerous. Maybe it was, maybe it was not. And um, before you know it, you've gotten a lot of alarm and a lot of expense for no good reason. Okay. Annie? Okay, I think we're going to go to uh, Glenn first, and then Dieter, and I'll do cleanup. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think Mike uh, uh, made a wonderful uh, remark over there, and this is read that label of the chemical which you are using. And I just went over from my office over here to the kitchen, and I picked up a bottle um, whatever it is, you can buy it in any store, anywhere in the country. And the first sentence on that bottle is, and I know Cliff knows that one from his chemicals, uh, directions for use. It is a violation of federal law to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling. And, yeah, read that label, and it's small print. You may have to put on the reading uh, glasses, but there is good information uh, uh, on there. I have worked with the nastiest chemicals ever in, in, in the world. Uh, I handled very safely. I, I can handle plutonium in the laboratory. I handled very safely what was called methyl isocyanate. That was the stuff that blew up in India and Bhopal. Uh, if you tell me, uh, and I read the label, believe me, <laughs> I can handle it. And I think we are sometimes just too lax, and I don't know where to teach it. Should we teach them in first grade or in high school? I don't know. But we are surrounded by chemicals, all of which did not exist when I was a little kid. So... Uh, I couldn't read, and I didn't have any bottles on which there was anything written on there. In fact, we didn't have bottles. Um, there is you know, something that, that we have to learn as we are progressing, in quotation marks, as we are pro progressing with our society, and you just can't use you know, any, any, anything that you can buy like 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 soap or, or or water or something like this, and don't use it the way you think you should or could use it. Do it according to the label instructions. I think that's the best thing I can say right now in a relatively very short time. Thank you, Dieter. Glenn. Hello. Thank you. Um, I had a question. It's a little off the beaten path. It had to do with um, green cleaning in schools. Um, you know with with uh, my own kids, sometimes you walk into the school, especially on a morning, and you get a pretty powerful whiff coming out of the uh, uh, hallways from the cleaning products they use. Sometimes it's an ammonia smell, sometimes it's a chlorine smell, sometimes it's something else. And in the last year, I've seen a lot of legislative proposals calling for green cleaning in schools and that type of thing. So I just wondered whether our guests would like to maybe make some comments about you know green cleaning and, and how it relates to school environments. Yeah, uh, I guess the first thing is whether a child has any greater sensitivity to a particular agent than, uh, say, an adult. And, and there's good reason to believe that, that they do. So there, there is some semblance for looking, especially at airborne exposures. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, maybe one of the best examples I can think of is with, um, floor finish removal, and that's something that is a periodic function throughout um, any kind of school. The the grades of supposedly green strippers are coming out right now tend to use a very effective and yet less volatile solvents than the predecessors, 
And as a result, there is actually more effectiveness on the floor and less less uh, airborne VOCs. So from that perspective, it makes a great deal of sense. The thing that concerns me about green cleaning is, again, that the people will misunderstand, well, what does this mean? Does it mean that we can use any product, any way, uh, without regard to its functionality and still expect that it's not going to have any bad effect? Um, it still goes back to fundamental training on how to use these things. Uh, as far as things like chlorine is concerned, you know, certainly chlorine bleach is a great destainer, deodorizer, uh, germ killer. Um, does it get up in the air? Sure does. Is it more prone to cause uh, side reactions if you mix them properly? You bet. So there's other types of uh, odor control and uh, bacterial control products that don't have that kind of odor. But I, I, again, I think the concern is just when you say that the, that the building is being green cleaned, what does that really mean? Because, um, I, again, I, I think going back to the idea that the definitions are not all that solid at this point. Mike, uh, my question is um, you can just comment on the stigma that green cleaning products have crappy performance and are overpriced. Well, I've used a number of products myself that are claimed to be green, and in many cases, their performance is really quite good. Um, but you are right. They do have a bad reputation. Um, I think as far as the cost is concerned, this is probably one of the areas that concerns me the most, and, and in part because whenever you have a product that is, you know, quote, green, if it's been green certified by some agency, you're, you're, these green agencies don't do this just out of the kindness of their heart. Yeah. They may be, some of them are nonprofits, but they still charge a pretty penny. And so in order to put that logo on your, on your label, uh, that's translated into additional costs, which costs somebody something. That's the part of it that concerns me the most. I don't know if there's any good answer to that other than companies developing their own internal standards for what's green, but then you get back to the issue of greenwashing. Right now, there's no no good answer to that, but there are some different definite problems that have to be solved. Okay, Mike, how can our listeners contact you for to you know answer questions, discuss further with you? Could you give your contact information, please? Sure, be happy to. Uh, my email address, probably the easiest way, is Mike K M I K E K at ProRestoreProducts.com. Okay. Well, before we sign off, I'd like to thank our special guest, Michael Kerner. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, Environmental and Koalecki, the IAQ newsman, Glenn Fellman, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 